0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the Greater Pittsburgh Metropolitan Area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 19. Pretty lengthy scripture passage this morning. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Genesis nineteen verse one. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, "My lords, please turn aside to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet, then you may rise up early and go in your way." They said, "No, we'll spend the night in the town square, But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. We are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, "Who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and sent him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, and for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Heavenly Father, we do look to you for your grace as we read this chapter, Father. We ask, O Father, that you would instruct us in the many lessons that are contained herein, Father. And we pray, Father, for your help and your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I'd like to begin commenting on this chapter first by simply saying that if the Bible was merely the product of, and we'll put this in quotation marks, religious men. In other words, if the Bible was just simply the writings of religious men. I could hardly believe that Genesis 19 would be included. Um, uh, Obviously, um, it pleased God to record these events for us, and it pleased Him to give us this recording for our own benefit. And of course, there are a lot of lessons in this chapter as we are going to see as we begin to uh, study this text now our text this morning is quite large, and I think as I was thinking about how, how how do we put all of this stuff really under a couple of headings that we can that we can remember in other words, what do we do with all this? We need some kind of organizing principle here in order to look at this text and at least as I was studying it, I was looking for these how do I how do I organize all of the the things that are they're going on in this text because what I did not want to do is they're, they're really I, I think our story can be parsed into eight parts. Now, could you imagine an eight-part series on Genesis 19? That's not something that I really wanted to do. I think you'll all be happy about that. Uh, so, how do we how do we organize this? And in other words, in in our minds. Uh, I, if you will, how how do we organize and hang all of this information in a place where we can get to it? There are two words, if you're taking notes, these are two words I think would be helpful for you to write down. They're the words pilgrimage and judgment. Uh, The word judgment might be quite obvious to you. The word pilgrimage may be not quite so obvious, but I think it will become obvious as we go. The relationship between the two I'll have to explain, Uh, but the title of this message this morning is Pilgrimage and Judgment. Um, Those are the two things that I think we need to hang all of this on. Now, what I want to do now is just go through our text and briefly explain and offer some comment, I think where comment is needed, and then from there I have a number of um, observations that I'd like to make about the text as a whole. And then we'll put this all together into a point that we can leave here with. Does that sound reasonable? I hope so. Because that's what I have. (laughs) It's a little late to change it now. (laughs) The first three words we have of our text are very important words. Notice uh, the two angels. I have commented on these three words already when we were looking at Genesis 18. Because in Genesis 18, three visitors appear before Abraham. Abraham, we're told, is in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And I I think some scholars suggest that he was probably taking a nap. I think that's pretty reasonable because we don't have any really uh, any record of them coming towards him. He simply lifts up his eyes and they appear. Um, They appear. And the reader knows right away the identity of one of these men that appear. One of the men is the Lord himself. But Genesis 18 doesn't give up the identity of the other two. Genesis 19 does. The identity of the other two men are angels. We have two angels and the Lord himself. And I'm of the conviction, as I said um, uh, in an earlier message, I don't remember if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, but I'm of the conviction that, that uh, the Lord here appearing uh, before Abraham is the Son of God, a pre-incarnate Christ, if you will, appearing before Abraham. So we have a pre-incarnate Christ. We have, we have God, the Son, and we have two angels appearing before Abraham. Now you recall that the Lord stays with Abraham as Abraham intercedes for the city of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Gaboam, and uh, Zoar. And the two angels continue on towards Sodom. Now our text picks up, the two angels have made their way to Sodom, We're told that it is evening time. Hold on to that detail. We're told that it is in the evening. And here we see Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. So it's often pointed out that we have a parallel here. You know, here we have three men appearing to Abraham while he's sitting in the door of his tent. Here we have two men appearing before Lot as he's sitting in the city gate. Now, that is a detail that shouldn't escape our notice. Lot is sitting in the city gate. What is so significant about sitting in the city gate? Well, in antiquity, the city gate is where the elders of the city would gather to make decisions. I think to put it into contemporary terms, uh, Lot is on the city council, I think is, is what we're seeing here. But well, what's Lot? He's, he's, in the, he's in the city gate. He's on the city council. Now, we're told in verse 1 that when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Verse 2, he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night there. Now, here at the first, we think, Okay, here, Lot is extending hospitality in the same way that Abraham extended hospitality. And and I think that is true. There's a little more to the story than that. Notice what he says. My lords, please turn aside your servant's house. Spend the night, wash your feet, then you may rise up early. Okay? Reading between the lines already in this verse before we read the rest of the story. It seems that my lot's hitting here. Uh, you, you, need, you, know, you need to get to my house quickly and you need to get out of my house early. Uh, you're obviously not from around here. Or you wouldn't just be strolling in here like. They respond in verse two. No, no, uh, we'll spend the night in the town square. And Lot in verse three he presses them strongly. Presses them strongly. In other words, Lot will see none of it. Uh, no, you're 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 coming you're coming to our home. So they turn aside to him and enter his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So uh, Lot brings them into his home and extends. Uh, warm hospitality to them. And then we have another, the next part, the, the next um, scene, if you will. Before they lay down. Now it's in the hours of the night. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, there's something going on there that I think we should observe. Sometimes, When we use the word all, A-L-L, we use it kind of in an exaggerated sense. We'll use it it as a perbole. That would be the technical term for it. For example, if you pick up the newspaper and the headline says, all of the city was at the game. Now, we make it, uh, your mind immediately makes uh, some interpretive judgments about that headline. One of the interpretive judgments that you make without even thinking about it is that there was a lot of people at the game. You never come to the conclusion that every single person in the city vacated their property, vacated the workplace, that the hospitals cleared, uh, that no one could be found except at the game. Uh, We would never make that uh, determination. For starters, the ball field wouldn't be able to contain the population of the town it's in. There isn't a stadium that could contain the population of a city that it's placed in. We quickly say, okay, what this means is there were a lot of people at the game. But this verse, notice how this is written. Before the men lay down for the evening, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man. In this case, all is not being exaggerated. Everyone is now, all of these men, to the last one, surrounds Lot's house. In verse 5, they call out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, there are modern scholars who interpret the word know simply as Hey, we heard you got some visitors. Hey, bring them out, that we might get to know these guys. Now, that's almost a ridiculous notion. The text could not begin to support any kind of idea of that. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shuts the door behind him. So the scene is, Lot hears them calling. He goes outside, shuts the door right behind him. So he's standing on his doorstep. And there he's attempting to reason them. And in verse 7, he says to them, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now, would it be a wicked thing for people to want to come and get to know these visitors? Hardly. Uh, And what happens, what transpires in verse 8 makes it even clearer. Notice what what Lot says in verse 8. He says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Now this makes it very clear what's going on here. I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. My roof. Doesn't that take your breath away? I mean, in different times when you've read this, haven't you been like, what? 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 What, what do we do with that? What do, we, what do we say with that? The best construction that I know that we can put on that is Lot is familiar with this city. He's on the council. He knows the things that goes on here. When these men, come, when these men show up in the city gate, he, he's, he's on this. You guys can't be here, man. You can't be here. He's, he's practically smuggling them to, them, to his house where he can hide them until wee hours in the morning, and then he can get them out of there before anyone even notices. Lot understands the wickedness of this city. The best construction we can put on Lot here is this. He realizes they have no interest in his daughters, so they're not going to bother his daughters. That's the very best best construction that we could put on this. I've often wondered when I've read this, Can his daughters hear him out there? What are the intentions of these men for these two visitors? Their their intentions are to sexually assault them. And it's an assault that will probably lead to the death of these two men. Lot here is simply taking things into his own hands, trying to do his best to... To spare these men, Uh, no mention of him calling on the Lord. And you know, the Lord's awful close to the situation. How do the men respond? They say, Stand back. It makes them mad, um, doesn't it? Notice what they say this fellow came to sojourn, now he's become the judge. You're judging our actions as wicked? Who made you the judge? And of course, this is the response the world will often give when you suggest that what they're doing is wicked. That's the response that I'm going to probably expect from this message. From some who would hear this message. We don't like it. We don't like being called on our sin. Not one of us do. Notice how they respond. Who, you came here to sojourn. Who, who, has become the, who has made you the judge? Now we're going to deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against Lot, and they drew back to break the door. Now, a question that we might ask of this text right now is how does Lot really, like, how does a man who didn't grow up in this city, how does he find his way on the city council? And I think the answer to this is quite easy. It's actually quite easy. Genesis 13, when Abraham and Lot have to separate because their, their herds are so large... That the ground won't support them. Abraham says to Lot, "Listen, we've got to separate. You know, you, you know, you look, look at the land before you. You choose the land you want. You go the direction you want to go. I'll go the other direction." And Lot looks and sees the prosperity of Sodom, and in his selfish and selfish ambition, his selfishness and selfish ambition, off he goes towards Sodom. Now in Genesis fourteen, there's a powerful king accompanied by three other kings, Kedar, Homer. He comes down and he sacks Sodom, sacks Gomorrah, sacks Gaboim, sacks Adma, sacks Zoar. Carries all of the people off and all their goodies, carries them back to his place. Abraham gets word of it. What's Abraham do? Marshals his troops together, if you will, his men together, aligned with his, his allies, if you will, one of which is Mamre. And they go up and they defeat Kadarlahomer, They grab the people, they bring all the goodies, they come back. Now, what do you suppose that did to the status of Abraham in this region? Oh, he's immediately a local hero. What's that do for Lot? I don't know if Lot did things like this. This is reading between the lines. I don't know if he did it or not, but we we might even hear Lot say, do you know who my uncle is? But maybe he never said such a thing. But others would have said, do you know who Lot's uncle is? And I don't think it's too hard for us to believe it. They would say, listen, let's get in tight with Lot because we're in tight with Lot. We're in tight with Abraham. And if they said that, and we've seen how this is unfolding, it's not. there's truth to it, isn't there? Now, as strong as that tie is, as strong as that alliance may be, it's no match for the lust of these men, is it? Lot, we know who your uncle is, but you get between us and this thing that we want to do, and sorry, Lot, you're toast. And there we begin to see the, the wickedness and the depravity of all of this. Now here, Lot is, if things are things are getting pretty... They're getting about as tense as things get before blood gets shed. And all at once, the the visitors, they begin to reveal who they actually are in verse 10. They reach out... Uh, they reached out their hands, they, they grab Lot, they bring him into the house, they shut the door, and they strike the men who are surrounding the house with blindness, who were at the entrance of the door, both small and great, so they wore themselves out, groping for the door. And then we have another scene. In verse 12, the, the, the angels say to Lot, If you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone? And verse 13 they say we're about to destroy this place because of its outcry so in verse 14 lot he goes out and and he speaks to his sons-in-law his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters you see there he says up get out of this place where the lord is about to destroy the city but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting; he seems to be joking and that often is the case. Those for those who are perishing, that any idea of judgment does, in some cases, seem to be like a laughing matter. Uh, they they treat lot they treat uh, their father in law uh, really as if he's lost his mind, and they're laughing at him. Now we realize that Lot's daughters are not married yet; they're 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 merely betrothed uh, to these men. But uh, engagements in antiquity were much more binding than our modern. Engagement, so uh, they could be uh, spoken of as uh, actual sons-in-law. But let's think about this for a moment. Lot wouldn't have had to go very far to find these two, would he? Because they certainly lived in Sodom. And we've already been told where every man in Sodom was. These two characters would have undoubtedly been surrounding Lot's house with the same intentions of the rest of this mob. That's a scary and frightening thing, isn't it? The two men that your daughters are about to marry are gathered around your house in one accord with the most wicked people of the city who determine determined to sexually assault these visitors. It's a scary thing, is you you raise children, you, you wonder, okay, when they go off to school, who are their kids, who 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 are their who are they gonna pick as friends? Am I right about that? When they go off to college and you okay, who are they gonna pick as friends? You know, are they gonna pick good friends? Oh, that's something you pray about. Lord, I pray that they'll pick good friends. But but that's nothing in comparison to who they're gonna decide to marry. Who are they going to marry? That's a, that's a you know, I don't, I don't want to create any more anxiety in the minds of your young parents who are sitting here. You already think this way. Uh, this, is, this is to be a subject of prayer. Here we see that the, the man that Lot's daughters are betrothed to are these wicked men. But what about Lot here? In verse 16, you know, um, well, let's back up to verse 15. Notice it says at the beginning of verse 15 is morning dawn. You know, I, I asked you to keep a hold of the time marker we have in verse 1. It's evening time when the angels show up. And of course, they've had time to get something to eat. You know, that, that was a little more than just tossing some leftovers in a microwave. You know, that would take a little while to do. But, um We have another time marker in verse four that now it's nighttime. It's time to go down and lay down. It's time to go to bed. Uh, In verse fifteen, we have another time marker that really gives us some perspective of how long this goes on. Now morning, it's like it's morning. This has been going on all night long. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, "Come on, you've got to get your wife, get your daughters. You've got to get out of here." And look at verse sixteen. You know, Lot. Lot doesn't want to move, does he? He's lingering. He doesn't want to move. So, it, really, it takes the men seizing him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. We're told the Lord being merciful to him; it's merciful to him that he gets dragged out of this place. He's getting dragged out of this place, and as they brought them out in verse seventeen, they give him some command. They give him a command here. They, They say, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And and notice notice how Lot responds in verse 18. He says, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I can't escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? It's a little one. It's just a little one. I can't make it all the way to the hills. I mean, it's just a little one. You know, you see what Lot's doing here? It's like, you know, one commentator I read says, well, Lot just tests the reader's patience as you're reading this story. He just tests your, oh, the hills are so far away, and there's a little city. It's just a little city, you know? You're making me give up this big city, but if I could just go to a little city, you know, just a little city. It's just a little city. See, it's a little one. What are we going to make of that? Lot doesn't get what's going on. He just doesn't get what's going on, does he? Um, That's an important thing for us to hold on to here. He doesn't get what's going on. He's really responding with ingratitude for what's being done for him. How many men are going to get spared out of this city? One. He's the only one. He doesn't want to even go to the hills. It's just a little one that little city notice the patience the amazing patience in verse 21 one of the angels said, behold i grant i grant you this favor also that i will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken escape there quickly because i can do nothing to you arrive there and of course so are spared because of this so we have the other four cities you know sometimes sodom and gomorrah are thought of as a pentapolis a conglomerate of five cities if you will you know Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zoboam, uh, and, and uh, Zoar. Uh, Zoar will be spared from this destruction, but the other four cities, as we're going to see here in verse 23 and following, are going to be destroyed. We're told, when the sun had risen on the earth, when Lot came to Zoar, verse 24 is one of the most horrifying verses in all Scripture. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The old phrase fire and brimstone comes from verse 24. Uh, the fire and brimstone. Verse 24. The Lord overthrows those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. In verse 26, Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Let's not pass past that too quickly. There's... Quite a lesson here for all of us fellows. I speak mainly to those of us who are married. The commandment is not to look back. We're told that Lot's wife is behind Lot. Lot doesn't look back. So Lot's not even going to realize that his wife is lost until he gets to Zoar. When he gets to Zoar, he's going to turn around. When he's able to turn around. And when he turns around, She's not going to be there. She's not going to be there. And When I read this verse, I, it, 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 every, every time I read this verse, I think to myself, why is she behind you? Why don't you have her in front of you, holding on to her shoulders so that she don't look back? There's a lesson here for us. Fellas, we're to lead our wives. We're to guide our wives. We're to nurture our wives. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We get her in Zoar before we make it to Zoar. If she'd have been in front of him, and he would have been constantly saying, don't look back, sweetie. Don't look back. Don't look back. It's not worth looking back. Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look back. She made it to Zoar. Now, granted, in the grand scheme of things, God is sovereign over the salvation of all souls. We keep that truth up here, but let us always, unless we escape into some kind of crass fatalism, let us always keep that we are responsible agents. God is sovereign over souls. Ultimately, there isn't going to be a person who gets to heaven save those whom the Holy Spirit has come and regenerated and caught. All of that stuff. Setting that stuff aside, God's sovereignty. Sometimes the focus is on human responsibility, like it is here. Human responsibility. Fellas, keep your wives in front of you. Let us keep our wives in front of us. We're called to lead them and nurture them. Verse 27. Scene turns to Abraham, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord now it's it's up on the hill again, you know, back in Genesis eighteen, they were up on the hill. They're looking down at Sodom, Abraham and the Lord, Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Goboim. Now the scene's back up to Abraham. He went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley and God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. But then the scene turns to verse 30. And I'm not going to explain that. We got that, didn't we, when we read it. We don't need a verse by verse on that one, do we? I think this is enough for one morning. We just see the the, 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 the state of depravity in Lot's home. Now, I have some observations that, I would, some reflections. Peter in his letters refers, he makes a reference to Lot in his letters. Many of you know what he says. What does he say? He refers to Lot as righteous Lot. Now, is there anyone here who would make that determination from Genesis 19? Be hard, wouldn't it? I mean, we learn a lot of things about that. I mean, Peter refers to him as righteous Lot, he is spared from the city. Um, lot is a believer. And I, I think that this stands as an emblem for us all. That, and um, my intentions here are not to slam Lot, because what Lot's reminding me of is that I, that's how far I can fall, that's how far we can fall. This is what our own families could actually look like if we consistently make the right moves. This is how far we can fall. Um, Lot is spared, uh, but he's spared in what we might call 1 Corinthians 3 kind of way. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, we don't have time to explain all of it, but just write write on your bulletins 1 Corinthians 3 and look the passage up. Um, In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's talking about ministry and The importance of building on gold and silver, which is what I'm trying to do this morning, build on gold and silver. We don't skip this stuff. We don't skip it. We build on gold and silver. The importance of building on gold and silver versus hay and straw. The man who builds on hay and straw, hay and straw will not withstand the fires of judgment. He will survive it, but as one who comes through the flames. That's what Paul is in essence saying in 1 Corinthians 3. So, Lot makes it. But look at the expense. You know, Abraham forsakes everything to follow the Lord. And Lot loses everything as he's dragged behind the Lord. You see the big difference here? What a big difference. Second observation is obvious. Flee from the wrath to come. I mean, Sodom is meant to be an emblem of the horrifying judgment that awaits. I mean, Jesus spoke often of it. Jesus speaks often of it. Read through the Gospels and He speaks of the impending judgment. Repent ye or or perish, He says. Uh, He speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus speaks of it often. And it's a laughing matter to those who are perishing. It is. It's a laughing matter. The church at some point has decided that we shouldn't preach on this anymore. And really, I mean, some of the preaching that takes place and has taken place, the fire and brimstone preaching... Uh, some of that should never be preached. If a person can stand in a pulpit like this and preach judgment with a smirk on his face like he's going to delight to see it happen, he ought not to be up here in the pulpit. The, the hard attitude that we should have as we preach this stuff is given to us in Genesis 18. We should be preaching this stuff with tears in our eyes. Realizing that we deserve this as well. We deserve this as well. But we still, we can't jettison the idea of Judgment. People aren't looking for a savior because they don't think they need saved from anything, and they don't think they need saved from anything because the church is silent on judgment. That's really simple. That's simply what's happened, and really, come on, people will say a lot of people say, "Well, you know, judgment's just going to turn people off." You know, if we talk about judgment, we're just going to turn them off. We're going to send people who'd otherwise be coming. We're just going to send them away. Let's be tactful about judgment, but the Lord has given us judgment. You think the Lord given us? You think the Lord's given us Genesis nineteen? because He wants to turn people away who otherwise would come to Him? It's ridiculous. Let's be truthful. We don't speak about judgment because we don't want to be laughed at. We don't speak about judgment because we don't want to be ridiculed. We don't speak about judgment because we don't want people to think ill of us. It's all about the self most of the time, isn't it? At least, let me speak for my own life. Let me speak for my own heart. A lot of times when I don't, talk about it when I know that I should have, in times where I have failed, it's always been about Ricky. It's always been about Ricky, boy. That's who it's always been about, 100% of the time. Different times I've thought, well, you know, if I have said this, I might have, you know what, maybe, yeah, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, who is it really about? Who am I in love with? I'm in love with Ricky. That's who I'm in love with. These aren't easy words to preach. They're hard words. But these are the words we have. Third observation, worldliness and its danger. Abraham, remember I told you to hold on to pilgrimage and judgment? And these are really the two. Judgment's pretty easy, you know? It's pretty easy to get judgment out of Genesis 19. What do we do with pilgrimage? There are two pilgrimages here being contrasted. If we look at the overall context of what's going on here. From Genesis 12 and on, we have largely been looking at what God is doing in the life of Abraham as he makes his earthly pilgrimage. Now in Genesis 19, we're looking at what the Lord's doing in Lot's life as he makes his pilgrimage. And the two are being contrasted to one another. The worldliness and danger, there's often a progression that's pointed out. Some of you have probably heard it. Maybe some of you have even taught it before. The progression begins in Genesis 13, I think around verse 12, where Lot encamps near Sodom. And we'll say, listen, okay, Lot, he goes near Sodom, and the next thing you know, Lot is in Sodom, and then the progression continues. Now Lot's on the city council. He starts out in a tent, camped out around the city, plays fast and loose with the lifestyle, ends up in the city, and ends up in a house. Lot has a house in Sodom. A house is a permanent structure. Houses aren't built to be put up and taken down, put up and taken down. A lot, is, a lot is camped out here. The Lord has to get him out of there. That's what has to happen. Fourth observation is common grace. How does We ask ourselves a question, how does Sodom and Gomorrah ever get to be like this? How does it ever get to be like this? It gets to be like this when God begins to withdraw His common grace. What do I mean by common grace? Common grace is all grace that comes from God that is short of saving grace. Saving grace, saving grace brings you into union with Christ. All other grace aside from saving grace is common grace. It's the grace that God gives to all people. When we get a beautiful day around here and it's seventy-two degrees and the sun is shining, and the sun—it's—it's—it—it it is. There is a rumor that the sun shines in some places. Uh, once in a while it shines here. But when it shines here, everyone, those who love Jesus get to enjoy it. Those who don't love Jesus, those who hate Jesus get to enjoy it. That's God's common grace. But as we rebel against God, as we as a nation say, you know what? We're not, we don't want you telling us what to do. We don't want to follow your ways. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do that. God will at some point begin to withdraw His common grace. And as he withdraws his common grace, what once would have been something that would have been taboo for us becomes normal. It's the new normalcy. And that doesn't stop there, it just becomes more heinous until that becomes normalcy. Then it becomes more heinous until that becomes normalcy. That's a scary thing. And this is what happens. This is what happens. Fifth observation, Genesis 19 is meant to leave a lasting impression. Now, when I say that I don't want to spend week in and week out in Genesis 19, I have a reason for saying that. And here's my reason for saying that is because one of the things I wanted to do before I preach this sermon is I wanted to try to determine what does Genesis 19, what role does Genesis 19 have in the overall message of the Bible. And I'll tell you one of the ways as I thought about that, Okay, what does Genesis 19 have to do with the rest of the Bible? How does the Bible use Genesis 19? And we can answer that question pretty simply. I'll tell you how I did it. I just got in a concordance and I looked up the word Sodom. And I discovered, if memory serves me correctly, in the ESV, Sodom occurs about 48 times. Now, many of those occurrences are right here in Genesis 19. So, I... Ignored those. And I went on from Genesis 19 and began to look at each passage. This is just reference where it says Sodom. If memory serves me correctly, Sodom occurs 27 more times after Genesis 19. And in every case, it's just this one word, Sodom. And when you read that one word, Sodom, it brings this whole thing to mind. This passage is meant to leave a lasting impression on us to the degree that all of the Holy Spirit has to do is whisper in our ear one single word and we get it Sodom. That's the function of this. Should we be visiting this all the time? Well, 27 occurrences is some frequency. But when you compare it to the occurrence of, say, the word covenant, which occurs maybe 200 times. Well, you know what? Listen, I'm just a simple guy. But when I see 200 occurrences of the word covenant, and I see 27 occurrences of the word Sodom, then I I I think I can draw a pastoral theological point from this, that I should be talking more about the covenant than talking about Sodom. I should talk about Sodom. We should preach on Sodom. It occurs from time to time. Well, we'll get to all of that because we're going to preach through the books, aren't we? For the most part. And when we preach through the books, we're going, to get the net, we're, we're going to get what the Holy Spirit has given us and the time that the Holy Spirit given us. Occasionally, with some frequency, Sodom is going to come up. Does that make sense? It's meant to leave a lasting impression. And sixthly, and this might be the most difficult for us, is the guilt of Sodom. What is the guilt of Sodom? If you think of Genesis 19 and you think the guilt of Sodom, what comes to your mind? I tested this on Tammy. I don't want to make an example of her. She'll clobber me after the service. But I'm only going to use her as an example because she's, she scored 100%. I mean, she just knocked the ball clear out of the park. And I said to her, I said, when you think of the sin of Sodom and you think of the guilt of Sodom in Genesis 19, what comes to mind? And of course, she rattled the answer right off. Um, She got 100% on it. But I I think, for the most part, if you ask this question of people who are familiar with Genesis 19, and you ask them, what is the guilt of Sodom? What what do you suppose the answer is going to be? It's going to be this homosexual act, right? This lusting act that we have here. Um, You know... I've resisted the temptation to have you go all over the Bible, but if you just keep your place in Genesis 19 for a minute and turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16. And if anyone's using a a pew Bible, when you get there, rattle the, the page number off for me. I didn't look it up. I'm using a Bible that's got large print that says something about my eyes and I even have new glasses on too. So I got these progressive lenses that I've still not... Things are usually blurry. So i got big print here. Um, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. I'm sorry? 703 if you're using the church's Bible. Some may not be this familiar with where Ezekiel is as you are with where Luke is, for example. See there verse 49? Chapter 16, verse 49. We don't need to guess what the guilt of Sodom was. The Bible is its best interpreter, isn't it? What, 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 notice what this is. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister. Look at that. That's, in, in light of what we just studied, your sister. <laughs> your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had, here's the guilt, pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. Ouch. What's that sound like? I saw an advertisement last night of how much pizza is going to be consumed today, I think, isn't it, today? I forget the number, how much pizza is going to get consumed today. I think it's today. Is it next Sunday? It's next Sunday, then. Sorry, I'm not in front of a TV very much. I don't have time to be in front of a TV very much. Um, pride. We could just think of pride of the church of thinking that we know better. You know, we can we can put our own gospel together. In excess of food. Well, a lot of times we think of. Uh, think of addiction, we think of uh, heroin addiction, we think of alcoholism. Those are the sins that are taboo. The Bible has overeating in there too. Sin of gluttony. You know? This is why people who are closer to the Lord are always thinking about their own sin instead of somebody else's. You ever notice that? It's hard for us to find somebody who's close to the Lord these days. But if you find them, I can guarantee one thing about them. They're always thinking about their own sin before they're thinking about anyone else's. Because they've had time to think all this through. The closer you get to the Lord, I mean, before you condemn the addict that's in the alley, uh, be sure you're not making multiple trips to the salad bar. Really, one trip is enough. You know? And Before we condemn the homosexual of their sin, and even just speaking this way today, says volumes as to where we are, this whole sermon has been abysmally, politically incorrect. I mean, I can't think of too many tripwires I haven't just scattered all over the field here. If you think of one I missed, don't point it to my attention. I can leave it alone for today. But it is what it is, isn't it? The Bible calls me to preach the whole counsel of God. If the day ever comes where I won't preach texts like this, then you have two, two, there's two things I want you to do. There's two things I want you to do. The first thing I would like you to do is to call me aside and say, Rick, why are you shying away from these texts? I'll tell you what my answer will be if I start doing it. It'll be because I desire acceptance. That'll be my answer. Because that's always the answer. Because I desire acceptance. Well, then you tell me to repent. And if I refuse to, then it's time for you to look for another pastor. The time has come to find another pastor. Because we're not up here to be popular. We're up here to be faithful. Think of our Scripture memory verse this morning. What does Jesus say? We just read it a little bit ago. What does He say? What does He say? Luke 17. Let's look at it together again. Luke 17, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life will keep it. Every time I have shied away from sharing this news, and I'm not suggesting that we leave here and we go down on route two here and just start shouting judgment. Let's not make this any worse than it is. What I'm talking about is when you're at that place and you're at that place where you know it's time to start talking about judgment with whoever you're ministering to. When you're at that place, every time I've been at that place and I've shied away from it, do you know what I was trying to do? I was trying to preserve my life. I was trying to preserve my reputation. I'm trying to preserve my standing. I don't want to be looked upon as one of them. And I shied away from it. But what does Jesus say here? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. We keep our lives by following Jesus. And following Jesus in this and this world is going to have consequences, isn't it? One thing to bring this all together, and I'll bring it to a close. It's a long text. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot. I have We have pilgrimage and judgment. Those are our two heads, right? We leave here, we think of two words. Everything you've heard, think of two words. It'll help you put all this together. Pilgrimage, judgment. What's the relationship between the two? What's the relationship? I haven't talked about that. How do we understand... How we understand judgment will affect our pilgrimage. That's the relationship between the two. How we understand judgment will affect our pilgrimage. A lot, judgment's not as big a deal as it is as it is to Abraham. When, when Abraham hears about destruction, he's on his knees with the Lord. No, please. And he's not even involved in it. And here a lot is. He's in the midst of it. And what's he worried about? He's worried. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to go from here over to the hills. Just let me go over to, you know, let I mean, just go over to Liverpool. And I'm not calling Liverpool Zohar by any way. But, but let me just go over to Liverpool. I don't want to go clear those hills are too far away. The, judgment is a little thing in Lot's mind, isn't it? Jesus puts it this way He says, He who is forgiven little loves little as we begin to see what Jesus is actually sparing us of, the more we begin to see what Jesus is sparing us of, the more we're going to love Jesus. I I want you to love Jesus. This is my goal this morning, is that when you leave here and you begin to digest, if you have to listen to the tape again, or whatever you've got to do as you begin to, to digest this, that you're going to say, you know something? That awful judgment that we read about, what, in verse 24, that awful judgment that took place is what Jesus endured on the cross. While Lot was running out, Jesus ran in. Why? did it for us. It's because He loves us. And the more we understand that, the greater we understand that, the more we're going to love Him. If we don't think we have much to be forgiven of and that judgment's not that big of a deal, our love is going to be reflective of that theology. But as we look at Genesis 19, and we're reminded of it periodically, 27 times as we read through the Scriptures, and more times than that, because there's other references that don't include Sodom, like remember Lot's wife. Jesus wants us to remember Genesis 19 when he says that. He wants us to recall that event. It's to leave a lasting impression on us. So we'll recall that. So we'll say, wow, as Lot was being drug out, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he went in. Why? To wash us of our sin. How bad is our sin? Genesis 19. When, gen- when judgment is properly understood and embraced, salvation produces love. All we got to do is contrast Abraham and Lot to see that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've been through a lot this morning. Father, a lot of information, a large text, things that are hard for us, oh Father. Things that are so very hard that cut so deeply into our hearts. Father, there's not a one of us who is unconvicted by these things, Father. We pray, Father, that, Lord, you would continue to place these things in our heart, but only to place these things in our heart as we would just be enabled more and more to fully digest what Jesus has done for us. Father, we so thank you that Jesus was willing to endure this this amazing wrath that He might save us. So, oh, Father, we pray, Father, You will help us. Help help us with this, that this would leave a lap- lasting impression on our minds, but it would not stop there, but it would also, by Your grace, produce love in our hearts for You and for Your kingdom and for Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.